This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast brought to you by Huntworth. Huntworth bringing you quality hunting clothing in packs at a price you deserve. Check them out at HuntworthGear.com. I'm your host, Adam Miller. I'm back with another episode, and this one takes a turn. Um, so we're talking today with uh, Charles Beatty, the Prince of Poachers. So, you know, we're not in any way glamorizing poaching or breaking the rules, but it's kind of like one of those shows on the ID channel where you watch the what happened, what went on in the mind of these criminals. Um, and uh, we all watch it. It doesn't mean that we condone what they did, um, but it's just kind of to get inside their head and kind of see what went on. I mean, imagine living in a time where basically there was no repercussion you lived in a land of giants uh the cost of poaching and trespassing was less than a traffic ticket and you're surrounded by big deer now we all have got that one buddy or those those guys who would do anything for big deer uh, and put them in a situation like this in that time frame you might see uh something a a little different uh out of yourself or or maybe out of uh one of your one of your friends or your, your hunting partner. So, um, let's take this podcast, not as a how to, uh, by any means, but kind of as, uh, just to look back at like what it was like, uh, at that time for, 
for Charles in uh, South Texas. So, uh, and I, and I was told before when I started this podcast, um, you know, everybody likes to hear stories about big bucks. Everybody likes to see big bucks and, uh, there's definitely some big buck stories and, you know, kind of the hyperbole, like can't believe this kind of stuff happened or went on. Um, and just to kind of wrap your head around it. So, uh, sit back, enjoy this, uh, as, uh, is just a, a a bunch of hunting stories or a bunch of a bunch of stories about big deer. I wouldn't I mean he was you can make a decision for yourself whether it was hunting or or what. Um but it was a lot more than just uh shooting deer out of a truck with a spotlight. Uh and I think that that's what, you know, most of the poaching that I that I always thought of as a kid or uh, you know when I think of poachers that's that's what I think, uh, at night with a light. But, uh, anyways, this podcast, Charles Beatty, Prince of Poachers, uh, I think you guys are going to really like it. Uh, if you haven't heard of Charles, man, he has some of the most wild stories, but a little bit of, uh, uh housekeeping. You got to say congrats to a bunch of the Patreons still out there. You know, we're covered in snow here in Michigan and, uh, all, all over the Midwest and, uh, we got guys still out after him. Uh, Landon Van Overbeek, man, he put down a giant buck uh, spot in uh, Torio on the board uh, after a grueling season. I don't know anybody. If you're following along in the Marco Polo group, uh, if you're one of the Patreons, uh, Tim is a staple in there. He's a crazy uh, rabid hunter and uh, hunting in a really kind of difficult spot with dog hunting and all sorts of stuff. And, uh, you know, Good to finally see him on the board. And then, uh, you know, our own uh, adjustable red dot uh, founder, owner, uh, Tim Zelenka, just put a, a, another doe down here in Michigan, uh, kind of spotting stock and some blueberries. So pr- pretty cool. Uh, but guys are still out there hunting, still plenty of time for the season. And, uh, you know, we talk about Tim and adjustable red dot. Um, you got to go check those out. You know, if you're having problems with uh, target acquisition, if you're having problems um, seeing through your peep site, uh, maybe, you know, your dad or one of your uncles or, or something, they, they want to still help with a, a vertical bow, but they're having problems seeing um, really great tool uh, to get them on deer, uh, on on target back, back in in the kill zone, uh, quickly. And, uh, you know, my daughter's been shooting it and for kids, you know, I think it's good to get them with, with, uh, almost like, a uh, immediate feedback. So right on target very quickly, uh, check them out at adjustable Uh, certainly check those guys out. And, uh, we're also partnered with, uh, Huntworth, as you heard in the opener, um, we do Patreon giveaways. Uh, Huntworth is giving away, uh, one of their Fairbanks setups, so that's their big uh, winter clothing line, and uh, they're giving away a set of bibs and a jacket. Um, we we'll, we'll draw that after the first of the year here. Uh, Spartan Forge, Spartan Forge is military grade targeting technology, artificial intelligence for the deer woods. Um, it uses uh, patterns, tendencies, um, tons and tons, billions of data points uh, to kind of uh, predict deer movement uh, based on weather patterns in your area, um, collar deer studies, all sorts of stuff. Um, but their mapping is amazing. And you can go on and get a free trial. Uh, it's not even a trial. Their maps are free. 
Um, so you can go to the App Store and go download the free version of Spartan Forge. But if you want that Intel piece and uh, some of the other add-ons, um, you can go to uh, SpartanForge.ai. You can use code Bowhunter. That'll save you 25%. Um, and then Lucky Buck, uh, you know, as I said, we were using that up in the UP and uh, just having great success uh, with Lucky Buck. If you can uh, use that in your area, Lucky Buck gives away one of the tubs of their mineral or some of their food plot seed. Um, and then our friends at Zinger Fletchings, you know, those guys. And this year they're coming out with their arrows. Uh, if you go back and listen to the podcast we did with them, um, they've got arrows coming out this year to kind of uh, offer up a total package. So we're going to try and get them to uh, pony up some of those for these giveaways. But right now they're just giving away a, a set of their Zingers um, for you to try out. And uh, really happy with those. So you can check them out at zinger.com. But all that is the way to give back to the Patreons. Patreons give uh, to the show. They donate money to allow us to do all the great things that we do. And we do everything that we can to give back to uh, the Patreons. And uh, to do that, um, we don't work with anybody that won't won't give back. Uh, so if you want to check out the Patreon, uh, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Boner Chronicles podcast. Go to the website. Uh, you can click on that, but uh, I know you guys are going to enjoy this episode. Um, it probably doesn't fall in line with uh, you know what what you guys are all about. Um, definitely, like I said, we don't condone poaching or uh, not following your game regulations. However, um, it does happen, and this is probably the most infamous uh, case uh, in history. And we had the pleasure of sitting down with Charles to talk about it. So I know you guys are going to enjoy the episode. Thank you, thank you, thank you. As always, thank you for listening. Hey, everybody. Adam back with another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast and a little bit different uh, take today. We're talking with Mr. Charles Beatty, uh, the Prince of Poachers. Now, um, you know, we... Once we get to talking to Charles here, he's, you know, he definitely has kind of changed his ways and his ideas of, of, of poaching. It's definitely not something that we condone, uh, but we got to understand it was a, it was a different time, and uh, you know the the culture uh, was was a, a bit different. Doesn't make it any more right, but um, uh, I've been told before everybody likes to hear uh, good. Uh, big deer stories and uh, on top of that we've got you know a guy who's probably killed more more big bucks and been in in uh, close quarters with more big bucks than than anybody that we're going to get to talk to so um, how are you doing today Charles? Doing good. So uh, give us a little bit of a, a background into like when you when you grew up hunting what was the culture of hunting and 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 where was it? Uh, where 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 did you where did you start out? Well, you know, at age fourteen, I was working in the taxidermy shop in Arlington in the Metroplex, Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex, and uh, you know, I signed up for a membership with the uh, American Sportsman's Club. You know, I'm starting down the legal road of hunting like everybody else seemed to be, and uh, I mean, I had a bad experience with it. I was signed up to a thousand dollars over a year to become a new member, and you know, the rules were that you could only call in 30 days in advance to re- reserve a ranch that you chose to hunt on some of their properties they had available. And, you know, in less than one minute, they had 
several big ranches completely booked out. You know, it was either a world record booking arrangement in one minute or I smell fish. I, I something's crooked going on here. So I got real soured real quick on the wealthy people dominating even those type of uh, hunting clubs, you know, American sportsmen of all things. That's a national big time deal. And it seemed as crooked and corrupt as you could get. I wanted nothing to do with it real quick once I smelled fish. So I was soured in my attitude. I worked in Fort Worth another year and a half to two years and, and uh, actually changed locations. And uh, while I was working at the other big shop there in Fort Worth, uh, professor drifted through Dallas-Fort Worth, met up with my brother at a gas station with some mounted quail he sold in a market, in a market hall in Dallas. And he started laughing at them because they were so bad. And he said, you never seen mounted quail? And he said, yeah, I've seen mounted quail all my life. My brother's mounted. Yeah, this guy, he said, what would you think about moving to South Texas and mounting all these quail for me? I market under glass and furniture and this and that. And I took the job. And he, he baited me and seduced me with the, you know, likelihood that I would get involved in, in the local community of the King Ranch right there in the middle of Clayburg County, Kingsville, Texas, and get invited through, you know, acquaintances that I would meet rapidly. And I went for it. I mean, I told my wife and son, you know, we had a six-month-old baby, I think. And we're moving to South Texas. I had a great job offer with him. I mean, I'm making 25 bucks an hour back in 76, working on those quail only like that. I could make 250 bucks a day. So, I mean, here I was, 19 years old. We were out of there. We go down there, and it didn't work out. I mean, I worked in a year and a half or so. I had to buy some day lease hunting and didn't get on any season leases. But I got a sire on that, too, real quick. As patient as I could be for a year and a half to try to get in with the King Ranch, and that wasn't going to happen. So I met all the local outlaws there at the taxidermy shop. And back then, it was a you know, maximum $200 fine on a game violation for any charge, shooting off the road or trespassing. And there wasn't these stiff hunting without consent of landowner laws that we have now. But over time, up until about the early 90s and on into the late 90s when I was caught and all, it got stiffer and stiffer. And it went in from Class C misdemeanor to Class A while I was still hunting. And just the year after I was caught in 1999, it was upgraded to a felony. There'd been a shootout when they had some guys pinned down and that and some other poaching episodes of some pin raised deer. That gave the ammunition to the Texas Cattlemen's Association landowners, you know, to lobby and push a bill through to upgrade hunting on a ranch without consent of landowner to a felony. I'd already been caught the year before and with a prior. I would have gone down for, you know, my probation period. I was on 18 months probation when they made it a felony. So I had, you know, big reason to just throw in the towel, quit. And I did. I hadn't been poaching since. But the, the trouble with it, it's just not worth going and doing it any ever anymore. It's over. Only dumb kids would risk that kind of a deal because, you know, minimum mandatory six months to two years in prison, first offense. And if you're prior, you got a reputation, you're going to get two to ten. That's the law. And guys like me, I, I've got five, minimum ten, probably if I got a second offense, third, I would have went to prison. It's not worth prison to go try to poach after them big deer. I give it up. But there's a whole lot more in the middle of my story going to be told later in part two of my book. But to explain why I went back to it, you know, after having quit for six years and was married and going to church and stuff. But that's all going to come out soon in the next few months with part two. But, um, you know, I was as addicted to rattling up big bucks as anybody's ever got.
that country down there is just paradise. You can go in there and rent up over a hundred bucks in one day. You know, the right time of the year and right weather. It's just insane. And so, you know, easily addictive situation in deep South Texas. I'm sure there's other places like that, but I hear a lot of people say we just don't have the buck ratio, buck no ratio to, to have good uh, rattling results. But I, I would imagine right weather at the right time of year for those areas, I could pull it off. I could go in there at the right time and the best time for two weeks prior to the frenzy where the bucks are on the does. You can rattle them up good two weeks before the peak of the rut. That's when they're real vulnerable. The big deer will come to you then. But it's madness. When they jump in your lap like that, it's the ultimate. Whether you're killing him with a bow or blowing a shit away with a gun, you know, it's, it's just point blank. They don't get any better than that. I've always said this, and I told this one police officer that talked me into going back to poaching after I've been in retirement six years. He said, tell me about a CB. How good is it? I said, better than sex. He goes, oh, come on now. I can't be. I said, better than sex. I got him in there and rattled up three bucks in the first rattle, and he looked at me and he goes, you were right. It's better than sex. You know, the guy went nuts. And then took a cop friend of his partner, buddy, you know, another law enforcement officer, right back to back to that first trip back. Took them both on four-day hunts. They had, you know, dream hunts, and you know, they'd agree they'd do it once, never go do it again. You know, one was married, and the other one was fixing to be married. And I just had to go live the dream, fulfill the dream, and, and get the trophy dream buck. And they got them. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the the beginning of that real quick. When you were talking about all the big ranches and everything being um, leased up and everything, uh, what is the the land situation like down there in Texas? So if you don't have a lease or you don't have private land, is there nowhere to hunt? Is there n- not a lot of public? Or, there uh, is, but there's there's what they call type two public hunting. Okay, you enter at your own risk. You go over in a place like that in the Piney Woods in East Texas, any other such available properties, your life's in danger. I've got a story coming in part two that I call the Uncivil War. And it was madness. My boss, once I got in church and started, you know, stopped poaching for six years and started trying to hunt legal, he took me over there and shots were being fired, not just all day, every other second, all night. Idiots were drunk around campfires, shooting campfires, probably just to see the coals burst into flames and all. But it was insane. Bullets were hitting trees. I'll never go back and risk my life on public land hunting again. You know, it was just camp after camp after camp down through them piney woods and that timber paper company lands, what they call it, where they harvest the pine trees and then replant. And a lot of clear cut and and this and that. There's deer. I rattled up a buck for a guy. And uh, he shot him right out from under me while he was coming to my rattle. And I ended up gutting it for him and this and that. And met up with some guys from Houston, men from Houston. All they were young men. They were in four-wheelers. And they'd already thrown after and visited with them. And it's a funny story because they passed pictures around showing off the little bucks they'd killed. And then finally they looked at me and said, well. I said, well, what? They said, you ever kill any big deer? I hadn't said a word. I said, yeah, I guess you could say I've killed a few big deer. He said, tell us about them. You got any pictures? I said, no, I got any pictures. Well, tell us about them. Well, I've killed them with double drops, double handlebars, double throat tines, double forks, double lug guards. I said, I, you know, 25 points, 20-inch spreads, 25-inch spreads. I said, I, I guess you could say I've killed one in about every shape and form they come in. And they were like, really? Where'd you kill them? 
I said, I used to be a poacher down on the King Ranch, King Ranch. And they said, Billy, yeah, you ain't got no pictures. I said, no, no pictures. Well, they didn't believe I was telling the truth. They didn't believe I'd rattled up that little eight point for that guy earlier when I didn't have blood on my hands. I'd wash my hands after getting it to the guy. And anyway, what was hilarious about it was they said they'd give me a ride back towards my camp on them four wheelers and they hit a tree on purpose just to throw me off of the four wheeler, just, you know, mad hearing all the big bucks I'd kill. I think they got jealous. Some of them did. There was five of them. Well, up on the ridge above us going in, there was another road up there. There was a suburban coming down through there, and it was that guy that I rattled up the eight-point buck for, and he, he was looking out the pasture side window, had that buck stretched on the top of that suburban, and he goes, hey, there's that guy that rattled him up and got him for me. <laughs> they started looking at each other funny, like, man, he's telling the truth about that. What if he's telling the truth about all them big You just see their eyes going back and forth crazy, you know? We got this wind the road, and he goes, all right, we're going to go back this way. I think your camp, where you talked about, it's over that way. And I said, yeah, you're, you're right. So they said, all right, see you later. And they started up there to check for tracks, see where they were going to hunt the next morning. And they went up a little ways. Some split went one way, some split went the other. And then they turned and come back about 100 yards from it. It was right at dark, glass steel, and I could see them side by side, two guys on their four wheels just idling along. And they said, there goes that guy. He said, you reckon he really killed all them big deer he said he did? And the other one said, hell no, that's the line of some bitch you'll ever meet in your life. <laughs> but I, I may run into him someday in a, at a Houston show, and if I do, I'm going to say, all right, boys, I'm buying the beer this time, and I got pictures. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess from that uh, aspect of it, it was almost safer to hunt illegally than it was to hunt legally? Exactly. I mean, I was one of few men that might have been in the whole county, okay? I didn't even have the usual bad luck odds of maybe getting you know, shot in an accidental shooting on some hunting from least men on the lease with me or next door or anything like that. You know, when I first started doing the poaching, you could find $35 a day, day lease hunting and go two or three days and pay that. And you probably wouldn't going to get anything. You might shoot a doe or spike or something for me. But I tried some of that and it was fruitless. And then that guy had some other property. He said, I've got big pastures. I can give you a season lease on for $1,500. He said, I've got a pasture so good. I can give it to you for $2,500 a season. See, that was two bucks then, three does, hogs, turkeys, anything. Well, there's your price tag for back then in 77, 78. Then, now, you're looking at $20,000 for those $2,500 pastures. You know, King Ranch, guided hunt, $20,000, and you're on a two-year waiting list to get to do it, and it may be higher than that now. I mean, the price of going on a legal hunt now is insane. And back when I first started, it was at 1500 to 2500 on big time. Well, $200 fine if you got caught poaching and you're out of court, out of jail. So, see, the, the, it outweighed it so much that, you know, a lot of people were poaching then. You know, they just didn't want to pay that high price as it started getting up higher and higher. Went from the hundreds to the thousands, you know. And when you're talking about these ranches, the King Ranch and Kennedy Ranch, for people who aren't familiar, because I know I certainly wasn't, um, you're not talking about like somebody's couple hundred acres where you're going in the backside of their farmhouse or something where 
you know, they're, you're hunting their, you know, their farmland or, or, or whatever. How big are you talking with these, with these ranchers? Six and seven, 800,000 acre counties, whole counties. The Kennedy Ranch is a whole, almost all of Kennedy County. The uh, King Ranch is all of Claiborne County, a portion of Kennedy County, and I think some in Brooks in between. Nueces uh, County's got a little part of it, the Alazon pasture over there close to Corpus Christi. So, you know, at one point, King Ranch had two point something million acres, and when the Claiborne dollars began to marry off the generation, you know, they began to divide it up, and I, I know they got a big. I think they've got a couple of million acres in Florida, uh, grass farms and stuff. I, I'm not sure exactly how much land, but it's a corporation now more than it was a you know, single land ownership back in the day. But, you know, Captain King, you know, his descendant him being uh, married off to Clayburg, Dick Bob Clayburg, ran in on the whole thing for a while. And the, his five daughters and uh, ultimately two sons married off, you know, and it, it got split up a bunch. And then, like, so when you went down there, you started doing your 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 taxidermy, um, and you kind of got brought into the outlaw hunting by a, a legal landowner. You thought you were kind of going on a legal hunt, and it didn't yeah. it didn't pan out that way, right? Yeah, I met a man in the taxidermy shop named Harry Riskin. He owned half a section in the middle of the Kennedy Ranch. And that was in 77. And Joe, the boss there at the tax time, he said, go with this man right here. He'll get you a big buck. So he said, you know, I want to see you kill a big deer. He, I was training his son birds. You know, I was a big asset to his shop. And he wanted to get me to root in and stay and work there and train his son. So because we had lost our lease on that professor's building early on and moved in, joined forces with the big major tax term. He didn't have a bird department. So, I mean, we just fit right in. So. I go with this guy and I think, you know, we're going to go in just after dark and I think we're going to camp in these cattle and start hunting the next morning some deer stand he's got. No, we go and he immediately wants to light it up. So we lit it up. I mean, I said, all right, party time. We do the spotlight and I mowed down a big hog running, a big wild hog and shot a nail guy in the back of his ear butt and dropped him. I mean, it was on then. I thought, you know, there's no telling what's going to happen tomorrow. So the next morning, it starts getting close to daylight, and he goes, okay, let's go shoot the big one. We jumped his north fence and went almost all the way up to the main Lafora Ranch house of the Kennedy Ranch. We hunted our way all the way up through that and saw incredible deer after deer after deer after deer. I think I passed a dozen before I shot one, and, you know, Spook took off, and I mowed him down. He goes, man, you're a good shot. And I said, well, I'm happy with that deer. Let's get you one now. He shoots one bigger than it. And I mean, welcome to heaven. It was like he had a badge on. We were going anywhere we wanted to over that you know, whole ranch. We hunted for many years off and on together and go different directions. And he showed me the ropes of the depths of the Kennedy. And he said, you know, you're free to go in here anytime you want when I'm not available. Good luck. I can't wait to see the deer you kill. I mean, we just became great friends. You know, he'd come stay with me and my girlfriend, Betty, and, and we'd go hunting. And uh, I did some hunts in between with my brother one time alone and, and uh, you know, some other friends. And it just it grew from there. But when I came back to Fort Worth after seven years of the poaching and living there in Kingsville, 
was working for a local Fort Worth boss, and he taught me to go into church, and my life took a whole different turn. And I gave up the poaching and uh, was married, had a son, married a church pianist. And it looked like I'd never go poaching again. I actually turned in all my deer heads, wiped the slate clean, turned through away all my pictures. I mean, I had a few friends that still had some I've recovered since then, but I had no intentions of ever going poaching again. Went through a real bad divorce, child custody battle. And of all people, it was two police officers that taught me into starting back to poaching to take them. They'd never been killed any big deal. And that kicked it off again. And I was bitter about losing custody. My son went back after the big deer in a little different manner. I, I was you know, operating, motivated by a vendetta. I mean, I was mad about the state of Texas believing lies and giving my son away. And, you know, I started caping off bucks and dragging them out in roads. I knew that they were aware I was poaching again, but I, I was doing it for a wrong motive. I, you know, I was probably crying out for some attention and about the wrong done me. But then uh, I just went on into hunting a lot by myself as the years went by. After taking a number of people, I began to hunt alone a lot. Great lengths of time, you know, 11 days, 16 days, uh, 27 days was the longest time I went on. I just found myself through my love of hunting again and went on down the road, you know, with my life. And then I was getting tired of it. And, uh, you know, I did. I prayed, okay, God, if you got a plan for my life, like you told me through other people in the church, I said, let's get on with it. I'm tired of the poaching. I'm tired of outlaw hunting. If I got to give that up, I'm ready to give it up. And so late season that year, I was caught, you know, on February the 5th and 6th, 7th. I went on a three-day hunt and was caught. They tracked me down with a tip and an informant and a big man hunt. And, uh, you know, that's when it came to an end. You know, it was all over then. But um, we post another 75 more big deer. I, we post 41 the first seven years I was doing it. And then when I went back on the warpath, we brought another 75 big deer out range. <laughs> And it's just that big. The place is that big. And even doing that over a period of nine years, we didn't hurt that place any. We didn't take anything but mature bucks, some camp meat. We didn't put a den in it. All them big deer we brought out of there had already passed their genes for years. So, you know, I never hurt that ranch. I mean, it sounds like I shot every buck there, but I didn't. There's that many there. So how do you, uh, I mean, from from the way you got into it, the way you got back into it, 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 it seems like on some level it was the culture down there that it was just like, look the other way. Um, you know, obviously unless you owned the ranches or you were part of the uh, fish and wildlife or, or, or whatever, um, killing so many deer working in a taxidermy shop, showing them off, uh, or, you know, people, people knew what you were doing. So, why did it take so long or how did it take so long to get caught? The odds are just that much in favor of the outlaw. A walk-in outlaw deer hunter that spends many nights out there in the woods in a row, he's almost impossible to catch. I mean, they got to get on your trail for one thing and then they got to be able to stay on it. And just laying for someone after hearing a shot to come out on some road or in the bay or, you know, anywhere you could wait there for weeks and not, they wouldn't show up. And then you, they give up the, the hunt and the stakeout and you come out that night or the next night. See, I, that's part of why I started staying lengths of time. I said, that increases my odds. If I popped a shot on a one day hunt, if I was coming out, I could be jumped on the road, walking the road to come out. 
if I stayed three days, they might wait one night for you, stake it out another night, maybe a third, but, you know, four or five days later, they think you've already come out. They're not going to be on a stakeout looking for you then. Walk out of there like you own the place. I had the odds in my favor. But, you know, they were getting wind of it. And I was one of the most wanted walk-in deer hunters for 20 years. And there's a, there's a funny story to that. I took a world-renowned hunting consultant once. And I took him on a couple of different trips. He'd take me on an out-of-season mule deer hunt. But this guy... <laughs> He booked a hunt in Mexico following Ben with me and his son in the Kennedy Ranch. Two weeks later, he's over in Mexico mid-January hunting over there. And as luck would have it, the guide he was you know, under was a King Ranch foreman. And he just wanted to hear his opinion of the quality of the deer on the Kennedy Ranch versus King Ranch because he was trying to tell him, you know, you can come book a hunt on the King Ranch. You want to really kill a big one. Well, he said, what about that Kennedy Ranch? They got any big deer there? And he goes, oh, yeah. He said, he said, you know what? He said, they got a poacher on that ranch for the last 20 years. And he said, and they just can't catch him. <laughs> he just been with me two weeks earlier in the county. You know, so he was like swallowing a big lump in his throat, you know. But um, that is a small world. <laughs> but you were talking about the culture. The fines, Twenty seven fifty for shooting off the road, thirty five dollars a second offense. It was a joke compared to the price of the, the honey. So there were a lot of meat hunters that fed their families that just shot deer off the road all the time where they could get them, you know, close, drag them up easy. They'd catch them, write them a ticket, going down the road. It's like a traffic ticket in the late seventies, early eighties. Then it began to change as the value of the bucks got higher and higher. The law got tough to, you know contain it you know once it was like cattle it was worth a lot of money people were paying ridiculous prices for them the laws had to follow and upgrade because of the values so when you talk about these long you know multi-day multi-week hunts like what was your gear going in and how did you sustain yourself uh with just everything on your back you know today we've got all this you know, high dollar mountaineering style hunting clothing packs, all that stuff. And guys that are hunting for four or five hours obsess over uh, ounces going in a mile or, or things like that. Like for for you at that time with the gear that you were, uh, you know, that you had available to you, what was a typical loadout and um, like a day to day for you? Yeah, I used to go in there a lot of canned goods and still did to a degree. And when I learned that eating fresh meat would keep me on my game better. So I began to take cooking equipment and that really made the difference. But, you know, I knew all the windmills. I could get all the water I wanted at night, you know, uh, throughout the ranch. And they couldn't stake those out. There's too many of them too far apart and all that. And I, wherever I was hunting. I would get a wind, you know, go to a windmill after dark and get water that I needed, brush my tracks where I wouldn't be, nobody know I'd been there. I got some crazy windmill stories coming in part two, but yeah, the water was number one important, you know, but eating fresh meat kept me strong. I didn't fade. When I was just eating canned food, I noticed that about that third, fourth day, I was ready to come out. You just play down. You don't have any stamina. But if you're eating fresh meat, two meals a day, you know, having your oatmeal at daylight, a little honey to give you some energy to get you moving. And once you get moving, get a good appetite and eat two good meals, 
you know, he just kept hunting like some kind of machine, you know. I, I ramboed him, you know, so to speak, because I got strong and I could carry big, heavy loads of backpack weight. You know, I'd go over that fence 130, 40 pounds and surprisingly get lighter for a while. And then as you begin to stack capes and horns and shit, embers and lock skulls, whatever you found, wanted to bring out, pack got heavier again. You come out with a heavier pack and you went in with it. And what about like when you were doing uh, canned goods and stuff like that? What about the trash? I buried my trash. That's one thing the game one said about me when they arrested me. They'd been on me 17 miles. First thing he said was when they stood me up, he said, he don't litter. You got to respect him in for that. He'd been on my trail 17 miles. He didn't find a piece of toilet paper where I wiped my ass. He, he knew I did not litter that ranch. I respected that ranch. You know, that, that ranch was a part of me. I didn't, you know, mistreat it. I found wasted areas that outlaws from probably Houston, San Antonio had hit it shallow once it was being leased out. The first seven years I hunted it, it was not being leased to anyone. In 84, they opened the hunting up in Kennedy Ranch, and there were big, you know, a lot of talk. Word got out. Well, then here came all these yahoos out of Houston and San Antonio, whatever, and they trashed the place, you know, four or five miles deep. I found all that, and it made me sick. I mean, I'd like to go down there and volunteer to run shotgun over a chain gang on everybody they catch in there and make them clean it up. I didn't do that to that ranch. <laughs> so um, you talk a lot in the book about uh, waiting on weather patterns and the best time to do all these these rattles and stuff. And um, one of the things I got written down here is like the hunting versus the the killing, right? So I would imagine the perception is, you know, anybody can shoot a deer with a spotlight. You see a big, you see a big deer, you know, and you got a weapon, you think nobody's watching, shoot it, run in, grab it. Um, you know, and, and, and that stuff still happens. Um, but I mean, were you shooting these deer at night? Were you actually hunting them on the ranch? Like what was the, the style, I guess. Yeah, less than 2% of the deer I killed were under a light. We'd get drunk, do some, you know, night hunting at night. I, I mean, that just hand in hand, most poachers are doing the same thing. They ride around getting drunk. Let's shoot a deer, you know, and then they shoot the first thing they see. I went on some nighttime hunts. It's got its own twist. It's fun. It's got some limitations, you know. It's it's hard to judge those big deer under a spotlight. They all look enormous when you light them up. They've got a good 150s frame, and then, you know, it's hard to judge whether they were 160 or 170 or just look like it, you know, and you can make mistakes. At night. I didn't like shooting them under a light like that. But to go where we went to do that, cherry pick some out of the refuge on the King Ranch, that was the only way to go about it. It's the only way to approach it. So, you know, I did it. It wasn't nothing I was proud of. I mean, it, it, you robbed yourself and the deer both of any dignity, any pride in what you did. You just got him. You know, there's nothing to really be proud of. I'm way proud of my ones I killed during the daylight, you know, rattling them up point blank, you know, seeing it all play out, the drama, see bucks fight in front of you and shoot the bigger one of the two sometimes. We've done that. And it's just beyond description. And that's as good as hunting gets. So I didn't care for the night hunting anyway. And I know a lot of people suspected that that's all I did, that you know, shoot them all under light. That's not what we did. You know, me and my buddies that hunted like I did and sometimes with me, we hunted them. Fair chase, broad daylight. Maybe more so than, you know, your legal hunters that 
park their truck at the ranch house, get on their four-wheeler and drive all over the place and sit in the blind, you know, assassinate some deer off a feeder or food plot. We went after them deer in the wild, fair chase on foot, head up. We walked 12, 14 miles back there before we'd even start hunting. And then we, you know, kill our deer, eat what we could for days and, you know, had to walk all the way out days later, weeks later. I mean, it was a real hunt. It was like going back a hundred years in time, you know, where the old mountain men crossed the land and they just hunted and lived off the land like Indians. We just went back in time a hundred years. No, we didn't have permission. We were breaking the law. But we gave those deer more fair chase, you know, more chance than all the legal hunters do nowadays. It's it's uh, and while they were looking down their nose at us for being posters, we were looking down our nose at them for being minute trap hunters, shooting them pin race tag ear deer. You know, it was just a joke to us. So, uh, I, uh, this is a a hard thing, and I heard you talk about it a little bit on other podcasts. That you know, you said you'd eat what you could, but being out there for weeks at a time, you know, you can't. You couldn't refrigerate that meat. You couldn't get it uh, cleaned out. So you, you wasted a lot of the meat. And when you talk about, oh, yeah. like, res- respecting the animal and the respect for the animal, you know, how, how does that play into, like, your feelings about it? Because it seems like just, uh, I don't want, like, a, I don't have a good word for it, like a money grab, you know. You're just shooting the antlers for to show off to everybody. You know what I mean? Yeah, but it wasn't that. You know, we weren't killing them to sell. We weren't killing them to show off even to anyone but our close friends. We weren't trying to go win a contest that legal hunters were involved in. For example, I stayed out of any contest in the Fort Worth area because of respect for my boss. My taxidermy boss had a great hunting place out in West Texas, killed big deer every year, and he'd win that rifle every year, and that was his big thing. Only one year did I finally get mad at him for pulling a prank on me and having some off-duty cops come in and flash their badges at me and act like they're federal game wardens and, and been aware of the fact that I just made an antelope hunt off the road in West Texas in the Trans-Pecos with a girlfriend of mine. And, you know, he thought it's funny. Well, I didn't think that was funny. And I told him, I said, Jack, you will not win that rifle at the Sportsman's Club this year. I will. I said, you're going to pay for what you just did. You know, they said they knew I'd been antelope hunting, flashed their badges and tried to scare me, you know, and I seen him snickering and knew the gig was up. But I, you know, that's one of my stories. And I won that contest by 59 inches with a 180 12 point. <laughs> so, you know, other than that, I respected those legal hunters to a point. I wouldn't go, you know, win rifle after rifle like that with poached deer, you know, and compete with them. I wasn't in it for the competition of it. I didn't like leaving the meat laying out there. You know, I brought a lot of deer out whole in the early years of starting to poach. I'd carry them, would backpack them. And, you know, cut, split the front legs and stick them through the hock, put them on your back, carry the whole deer out, gut him on your back, come out blood soaked, but you get to meet them. We, we carried a lot of deer out whole. But at a point when I was going after the absolute giants and I would pass 150, 200 deer on a three to seven day hunt and take one shot, kill one buck. People thought we we're shooting every deer we saw. We'd pass you know, 100, 150 deer on a hunt. And this cherry picked that one buck. You know, we weren't just going in there and leaving deer laying everywhere. I had a buddy, George Moore, this real bad outlaw. 
He went to a real far east deep place once, and he, he left a lot of deer lamb. He took a twenty two hundred where he could shoot all he wanted and stuff because he knew he would never go back there. I didn't like what he did. He didn't like it in the end, and he said, yeah, I, I shouldn't have done that, but he only brought three out of 13 that he killed out. So that was just senseless. But, you know, a buddy of mine went in there behind him a week later, and he saw all his tracks up down these fence lines and stuff, and deer laying dead everywhere, and buzzards were so fat they couldn't fly. He said, but they didn't need to. All they had to do was hop from carcass to carcass, you know. So the only thing to do about that was just forget it was ever done. Yeah, that, George shouldn't have done that. He said, I was never going back there that deep again. He was like 20 miles off the highway. Yeah, he, he, so you're one of the things I've noticed in, in all the stories and everything and are the, to me, are like odd cartridges. You're, you talk about the 22 Hornet and then there was some other like third, you know, odd 30 caliber rifles and 25 and things like that. Um, was there a particular rifle that you or like caliber that you guys use? Or is there like a, I don't know, like if, if, if you saw a, a guy toting this rifle, you'd be like, Oh, that guy's an outlaw. Like it just seemed like the, these were not your 30, 30 or 30 out six or, you know, seven mags like 308s not not rifles that i would i would think of as common deer hunting rifles yeah game wardens despise finding the 22 magnum in a hunter's truck they know that what that's for that's just strictly road hunting deer you know meat deer gun and 22 hornet about the same deal but 22 magnum they, they knew immediately that that's guys a poacher you know, that, that, that's not just a varmint gun. That's, that's a deer poaching gun. And so they're suspicious right off. I mean, I got that one story called Hill Country Hilarity where we just drove this one game one crazy up there curving on the hill country and a lot of exotics around there, the wild ranch and all these other big ranches with a lot of exotics. Some have super exotics and they have the game which have to work real hard to keep security on all the real valuable exotics. Well, I never even was appealed to by those exotics, but I got talked into going one summer and we got up there. We no more than hit town in this game warden at night about eight eight thirty in the evening. He sitting at a Y intersection that was a Y, two roads fed into one and he was sitting there gonna turn left and go the same way we were going and we passed through that intersection and he saw this pipe bumper on my buddy's truck and he recognized it because the week before he caught an outlaw friend of ours named Richard Yonder with a pipe bumper just like it. And I mean, he was heads up paying attention. So he followed us and we went on into Kerrville and I said, he's following us, Dennis. And he goes, no, nah, he ain't. I said, yes, he is. I said, pull over. We pull over. He pulled over. I said, I told you. And he goes, you're right. He's following us. I said, pull into that bar there, you know. So we ended up meeting a couple of gals and go out to this Ingram Dam by Lakey. And uh, he pulls down in under there. He followed us some more. And we didn't see him, but he tailed us. So he... Got the inside light on him and the door open. And I said, I'm going to go down there and ask him why he's bothering us. He said, man, I just leave him alone. Now I'm going to go down there. I go down there and talk to him. I said, do you need to talk to us? And he goes, yeah, I do. You get your buddies down here. We're going to have a talk. So Dennis, Bert, y'all come on down. He wants to talk. So he checked all our ID and he knew we were from Kingsville already, really. But he figured that out looking at all our ID. And he said, you boys, I know what you're up here doing. He said, I know what that 22 Magnum's for. He said, y'all need to get back to Kingsville. And he told us about catching our buddy. And 
You know, you know what happened to him? Yeah, he got his ass caught. Well, he was so, you know, asinine towards us, you know, his behavior and all. We um, we didn't like him. It's conflict from the start, okay? So uh, we just decided, you know, it's, I, t- I told him, I said, this America is a free world. We don't have to do what you tell us to do. We were pretty redneck with him. Well, he leaves and he's mad. And he said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do, though. He said, I'm going to dog y'all's ass the whole time you're here. Now you're going to mess up and I'm going to catch you. So he said, you just remember that. Be looking over your shoulder, and I'm going to light you up and catch you. I know what you're doing. So the next day he did, he tailed us. He tailed Dennis and Bert all around, and I went in this one pasture and stayed for a while and didn't kill anything and come out and hitchhiked back into town and, you know, got a little truck full of kids at a camp near there, took me on into town, and I got a chocolate milk, some hot dogs, and was sitting out in front of our motel room eating on them. Here come Dennis and Bert in the pickup and pulled in there. And, and just a moment before they could get to me, the game warden car went flying by. And I said, where y'all been? I said, man, that game warden's been dogging us all day long. And I said, well, he said, we finally had to circle around Mountain Home to lose him. And I said, you didn't lose him. There he is right there. <laughs> I said, yeah, you're right, son of a bitch. Anyway, he had checked them at a creek nearby while they were fishing, killing down. And he said, where's your buddy? He said, back to the motel with his girlfriend. He said, where's that 22 Magnum that was in the truck yesterday? And he said, back to the motel. He said, where's that knife that was in that scalpel on the dashboard yesterday? And he said, dropped it in that creek right there. And he goes, you boys are about to run me ragged. He said, I wish y'all load up and go back home. Well, the next day we left and we stopped, shot a black buck on the way and Dennis and Bert went out there and drug him up, and I drove up the top of the hill and wheeled around and come back. And they were running for the truck without the black bus. I said, what's going on? They said, there's a truck in my pasture. I said, that's an old hole. They said, you sure? I said, take a look at it. And they looked at it and went right back out there, got the black buck, and up and over the high fence. They went and dropped him right in the bed of the truck. We went and got him at a roadside park and went home with a black buck. So the game warden didn't stop us. So, you know, it's a hard job. I wouldn't want to be a game warden. You can't catch, you know, only a low percentage of what goes on do they catch. So what do you think the game wardens, um, I mean, obviously you got caught and, uh, you know, you had, you know, dealings with them over the years and then subsequently after that. What did they learn from you or what, you know, anybody that's, you know, looking at that line of work or whatever, um, you know, what can they learn from, from stories, uh, from guys like you? Well, they learned a lot and they told me, they said, you're the best we've ever seen at this. And they already knew that from not being able to catch me for all them years. And if they hadn't had an informant, when they did finally catch me, they wouldn't have caught me then. There's a whole lot of things that played into them finally catching me. I think it was the will of God. Well, you know, they actually had me down a year later for what I call a fishing trip. Drove me all around the ranch. They promised they'd let me back see the ranch when I wanted to. And so, you know, I went and drove around with them and visited with them, picked up my gear. But, you know, they learned a lot from me then on technique, and I learned a lot about their strategy. But the one thing they knew quick talking to me, they said, helicopters are no good, are they? And I said, no. And, you know. They knew that from having put them up so many times. That old wealthy landowner, Tom East, was in charge of the Kennedy then, and he had plenty of money, and he put them helicopters up after me a lot. I just had to, you know, bury up in my brush pile, tough it out, you know, and 
they might stake it out two, three days trying to see if they'd walk out on the roads. But one time they did that, and I walked out there that night. It was just a two-day hunt. And they just figured with that thorough of a search in that one isolated area of brush that, that I must have left the night before after they'd heard them two shots so they didn't stay and stake the road out. I walked out there like I owned it. But it's a big place. They can get on you, and you hear them pulling in helicopters. You get to jump on them, and you can run three or four miles wide open and start hunting again. And they're down there buzzing like a saw, cutting the brush up, looking for your, you know, poachers. And it's just that big. That's part of the odds. I was hunting a ranch so big that it was like, catch me if you can, boys. And, you know, I, we had a lot of fun doing that. We'd laugh when the, the heat would get on. It, was fun. it made it more fun. You know, that part was addictive, too. Well, and that's one of the things I got here is that, you know, talking about the, the addiction and then at the end of it where you, you kind of had nothing to lose and you were you were being very, very brazen. Uh, did you see that? I mean, even in the moment, did you see that as like a like a relapse where you'd not done it for a while and then as soon as you got back in there, it just kind of reignited everything and you're like, we're going to go go all out? Yeah. My, I mean, I'd been through a real hard time, and you'll see that in part two. But when I went on that first hunt with that first cop going back out of retirement, my spirit soared. I mean, to be back there after having been gone and have all those memories come back to heart, it was the most healing thing. I call it divine therapy. You know, God used that ranch, whether anybody will agree or not. They may agree when they see the whole story. But he healed me of the, the probably the world's record divorce. And, you know, I, I mean, I don't care who admits that or not, but that's what happened. And, I mean, then a period of time went by, and I just got complacent about it. I, I lost interest, really, in, in doing it, and I was wondering, you know, will I ever quit doing this? And, you know, there's no future in it at that point. So I began to say, you know, there's got to be another end to my story. Not not like this. Just keep doing this till I'm sold. I can't walk in there anymore. But um, that's when I was arrested, and it all ended. Ninety eight. And I, I tried to get to it a little bit earlier, but the you talk a lot in the book about the the time frame for like rattling and when these deer are uh, susceptible to it. And you know you've rattled up thousands of bucks. Like what? Uh, aside from the sheer amount of deer that were in there, were some things that like, like kind of like allowed you to stack your successes on that? Well, the first two weeks of December was the pre-rut, but right at it. So it could happen even on a hot day. You might not see nothing until 2 o'clock in the afternoon, or you might have a frosty morning and rattle up 30 or 40 that morning, and then about 2, it's 90. Just turn off real hot. But still, we killed some of the biggest deer, like December 7th. Two o'clock, 90, 90 plus, nearly 95, and just walk into the right case scenario in, in their territory, and they'll defend. They'll come over there when they hear the rattle, you know, and you get the shot. But you got to be persistent. you got to work at it. It's not a gimme. People think we just had them bucks handed to us when they see the size of them. They think, well, you just got an easy giant. No, we worked hard for them deer. We didn't just have them handed to us on a platter. You go in there a lot of times, not even kill one. Work your butt off and not kill the one you wanted. Pass, you know, 150, 200 deer, come out empty. I've done that on a seven-day hunt once. I let a big deer get away on that hunt. But you know, I had that one opportunity and blew it. 
And then, you know, in seven days, I come out empty. So that can happen. Even in the world's greatest white-tailed deer hunting country, you can go in there and come out without one. And so the the timing and weather, like what what sets up good for for rattling? Because I've never had any success with it, and i got to assume that, that it's me. Because people, you know, even in Michigan, people rattle in deer. But, like, uh, time frame as far as, like, rut, pre-rut, um, conditions around there as far as, like, you know, visibility, thick stuff. Like, what what is a typical setup? Well, temperature is one thing. A lot of people focus on temperature. Moisture is everything. If it's rainy weather, that's big John weather. I know. Pouring rain. Yeah, and if it's cold, it's even better. It's the ultimate. So that's the way I would pick it. I mean, I, it couldn't get nasty enough for me. I'd put on a poncho, a slicker, and just keep hunting. Pouring rains when we kill some big deer. But, you know, you see them coming in on every rattle bin. It's insane. I mean, that place is the hunting capital of the world as far as I'm concerned. It's always held that reputation. And with weather, you see that that's true. It's, I mean, I've rattled up over 100 bucks a day countless times. I don't know how many days I rattle up 100 deer in one day. It's nuts. When the weather's right, right time of year, that's what I call gonzo time. <laughs> so one thing, you know, this is a, a, a bow hunting podcast, and you, typically I think most um, people would think of – like a, again, like the the road hunter, like a spotlight hunter, somebody trying to, uh, you know, you're you're doing something illegal, so you're doing you 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 think you're trying to do it quickly and you know get out of there. But you guys did a lot of bow hunting too. Um, t- can you talk about that a little bit? Well, rattling deer up is the ultimate bow hunt. Don't get any better than that. Even in heavy brush, you see shooting neck. I've seen that happen. It's it's a thrill beyond thrills. You know, it's 10 times better than using a gun. I mean, I've taken guys and, you know, helped them and I've killed bow, bow kills that were they're just a phenomenal the way it played out, the way it happened. You know, I walked up on there, jumped them, and then before they'd go ahead and move on out of the area after getting up, you know, you'd get them up out of their bed and they they stall for just a moment. You get a look at one or two of them and realize whether you needed to take a shot or not. And I've done that just shoot in there and fill a little tiny hole and get a good long shot. I mean, I'm going to tell some of those stories in part two, but the bow hunting, I did a lot more of in part two than, than the first seven years. We did more gun hunting the first seven years. But I killed the number five typical on a hunt, and it was a 12-point with one eye guard, broke off, rattled him up 20 yards, shot him right in the middle of his wheelhouse when he spun to leave as I snapped off the shot. Punched him out right through the heart, low lungs, and liver on the way out. And he didn't go 35 yards and, you know, head on the tree and just KO. I wish I had somebody there seeing that happen. That was one of the real thrilling kills, you know. He straight at me when I let fly, and he spun to leave in there. I caught him right at the elbow on the way through, and, I mean, it was a perfect shot. Same hunt, the cop with me. Shoots a 174-14 point with his long bow at eight yards. Runs it through his neck through a tight hole in real heavy brush. Wood splinters went everywhere when he tarked his neck. The arrow hung and shattered and blood burst everywhere. Point blank, eight yards. The ultimate thing to see is a bow hunter. They're better than a pass-through. And, I mean, 
But I got all those stories coming in part two and you know, more, many more details about it. But rattling them up point blank is the, the ultimate bow hunt. They don't get any better. Sitting in a tree and sticking one, you might as well be sticking hogs. It's just not anywhere near as good as rattling them up and having point blank you know, looking right in the eyes. And it's, it's incredible. Yeah, and I guess that's one thing I don't think about just because of, you know, not having had the experience with the with the rattling but you know that close on the ground on a rattle you know those deer are coming in you know a, a lot more like turkey hunting or a lot more like elk hunting they're coming in looking for you they're trying they're to see open. what's going on yeah they're running they're, they're running to you i rattle up a nail guy and bow killed him you know i've rattled up countless nail guys they come to a rattle i think they're curious they want to see the fight they fight, and maybe they're tying it in with, with their own, you know, kin, but they come to the rattle. They come good. They want to see the fight or something, and they'll come to you. I mean, bow hunting nail guy, I mean, that's as good as it gets for nail guy hunting, too, rattling them. And those, you, you talk, tell some stories about those in the, uh, in the book, is that they're a huge animal, right, for guys that aren't familiar with with Neil yeah. guy or what they are. They're, so they're elk, they're elk sized animals. The big bull, he'll nearly weigh what a fully mature bull elk will weigh. You know, they're, they're nine, nine, 15. I seen a nail guy one time. I thought my whole guts and all might've broke a thousand pounds, but, uh, 1100 is about a big bull elk, you know, on the hoof. I mean, I've seen some world record horns on them and passed them when I was in the peak of the rut and did not want to be wasting my time. You know, shooting an elk, gonna pop a shot, wreck the hunt. Because a lot of times, you pop a shot, and you can draw heat and have to move. The hunt's over. You got to move then. You got to leave that area before the helicopters will get there. So I, I passed a lot of real big monster trophy class nail guy. And you did that a lot of in the book. You say that they're just too big to mess with, right? Yeah, I skinned one off one time because I wanted a rug, just that whole hide. <laughs> Probably 160, 180 pounds. It was like dead man carrying a grown man over your back. I said, well, I don't ever do that again. <laughs> so uh, back to the the bow hunting thing, like you know, we we talk about gear and stuff like that, and the the the, the rifles you use and stuff. What what was the bow equipment like back then? What, like what what was your bow arrows set up? Do, like, do you remember any of that stuff? Oh, yeah. I, I strictly used a sight pin rack. I didn't use a peep on the string. I didn't use a trigger. I just shot with my fingers, but I anchored the corner of my jaw, you know, in my index finger, anchored good on the corner of my jawbone and one eye of the pin rack and pick the pin and then go for it. And you could shoot so quick, it wasn't even funny. The only thing quicker than that's recurve traditional archery, you know, longbow recurve. You know, you can slap a shot off a lot quicker with traditional archery. And if you rattle him up point, that's critical. You need to be able to get that shot off. And if he's just running through or if he sees you once he gets close and, you know, spins and takes off, you got to be able to get one in him. You know, just get one in him and slow him down so you go track him down and get another one in him. I mean, you got to make your shot quick. That's of the utmost importance when you're rattling him up. You try to stop him with a bleep. You know, you might get to, you might not stop him. Once he sees you at 10 yards or less, he's longer just, you know, dark and, you're way ahead of the game with a quick shot. 
and all this contraptions they've got with the triggers and the peat and the pen and everything. I, I just jerk the rangefinder out of somebody's hand and throw it on the ground if they thought about bringing one of them. I said, you don't need that. You know, they've got so much high tech in it nowadays, it takes them probably three minutes to get off the shot. <laughs> the buck's gone by then. Yeah, I don't get all that stuff. They're just overloading themselves with all this high tech shit. That was never for me. I got into traditional archery through the second police officer that I took. And when I went traditional, I never went back. I, I shot some deer that year with the breed curve. I mean, a compound that the, the first cop brought with us. And then I borrowed it on that next time. But after that cop, second cop talked me into going traditional, I never looked back. I didn't want to shoot, you know, compounds anymore. It was so much better shooting the traditional archery. And so would you carry both weapons, a, a rifle and a bow? Yeah. Yeah, I kept my rifle over my back. I carried it a little different than a lot of people do because, you know, get the barrel pointing out behind me, two reasons, safety and out of the way, duck them low-hanging limbs through that big brush. But then I'd have my bow in one hand, rattling horns in the other, and, uh, you know, move from spot to spot to rattle. But uh, that longbow, one great thing about it was when I began to use it, going in at night, walking through the rough instead of going in down the road, you know, you encounter just hundreds, thousands maybe total on a lengthy hunt of the big spider webs. I would wave that longbow unstrung out in front of me like a blind man using a cane and knock down all them spider webs and keep them from just matting up continually over my face every time I walk by a tree, you know. Just another little twist to it. Just one more thing I learned. <laughs> Good ideas. Yeah, because it would just seem like, you know, you're putting in all that effort and everything. And I, I mean, we think about it today on the, obviously, the legal side of hunting, but traditional archery, you know, there could be that once in a lifetime deer out there at 40 yards that you could kill with a compound and you could certainly kill with a rifle. And, you know, you've got, a lot more skin in the game as far as, you know, not just missing the deer of a lifetime, but, you know, getting caught, everything that you've got invested in it. Um, the traditional route seems, is, is an interesting choice other than the, the quick shooting. Yeah. Well, like I say, it's, it's more important. I think the timing is more important than accuracy because if you get one in him, you're going to hurt him. So to get one in him or to have him run off on you while you're trying to find Pete and center your pen and, you know, squeeze your trigger sweet and all that, you had done messed up. That deer's done gone. You're trying to ass shoot him leaving then. I just don't, you know, the delay is what cost you the deer. You know, the same thing with a gun. You clown around in it all. If he's of a mind to, he can spin and go and be gone. They, they can disappear in less than two seconds. You know, less than a second in a lot of cases. One leap and they're out of view. You know, once they spook, you know, they're gone. You know, you see that and leaving. I was at full draw once the first year back poaching with a compound bow. And I'm fixing to shoot this 155 plus 10 point that's just running this dough back and forth, back and forth. And I snuck in there on a stop to get my shot. <laughs> 
and I saw movement to my left, and this real wide, heavy, red horn, 10-point frame with a big unicorn point between the eye guard and the back tine came down into the front of the rack, in the middle of the rack, and then dipped and came up. The, the, the unicorn was over 12 inches long, probably 14 inches long, and I just tried to swing left to get the shot off. He was spitting distance. He'd come out of a solid wall of live oak from me less than 12 yards away, and he took a few steps as I was trying to turn and swing to get the shot at him instead of the other one. And he just kind of got stiff looking and wide eyed and then turned and leaped one leap up real high in the air and landed in the shrub oak. Gone. Less than a second, he'd been that wall of brush he'd come out of. I mean, he just walked up on me. He could hear that buck chasing that doe back and forth, making all that noise, and it pulled him right to me. And I mean, I'm still sick. I hunted that deer several times. I went back several times in that area trying to see him again. Never saw him again until late February. And I saw him and he had his horns already dropped. I saw them big blood particles. At first, I thought it was a huge doe. And I said, wait a minute, what's that on the top of his head there? And I got to looking at it about 45 yards. And I said, that's him. That's the unicorn buck. And he looked at me and it was like, he recognized me. There's the werewolf. Gone. <laughs> Now, is that the one in the book that you talk about that you wished you would have went to find his uh, shed antlers? No, this is coming in part two on that uni buck. Okay. But, you know, there's there's other times when, like Harry Risky to me one time went February 5th, rattled up 20-inch spreads, five in a row, shot every one of them for extra capes. They weren't really trophy deer, but we were getting some extra capes for it too late in the season. Have good hair, you know, so we needed them extra capes to go with some other racks and old skulls we found and stuff and you know Harry shoots this deer and I plugged up my ears when he shoots and closed my eyes just kind of looked down when I did another bug come up behind it and lined right up with him it looked like when I opened up my eyes and looked up after I heard the gun stomp I looked up and I said you shot his horns off and he goes, no, I got him. I said, no, you shot his blinking horns off. I thought that they were still standing there alive with no horns. Thought he shook his head when the muzzle blast his ears hard. He said, no, that one came up right behind the, the, the one standing right there where he was. He said, look, now look, there that deer laid dead on the ground, the broken neck. He shot the bucket I was looking at when it come up, you know. And But when I put my face down and quit looking, just plugged my ears because I was in front of him. I was between him and the deer. I didn't see that second one coming running up. And we looked a little ways. I don't think we looked far, but we should have spent an hour looking for that deer shits because he could have been a 180 or 90 buck that had dropped him on the way in. We tracked him a little way. I remember that. But it got into the live oak leaf bottom, and we couldn't keep the track line, and we just said, screw it. But we should have looked more. There's no telling what that deer looked like, but he might not have dropped him there. He might have dropped him days before, week or two before. We will never know, but he had big, bloody pedicles, and I thought, man, that, that could have been a 180 or 90 buck. That's the one you're probably talking about. Yep, yeah, I, I recall reading that now. It flipped, it flipped me out. <laughs> Look up, and that buck's still standing there, but with no horns. You know, same spot. He said he just lined up right behind him. It's a wonder Harry didn't shoot through his neck and kill him, too. You know? So I, I want to ask you a couple more things before we – kind of close out here but what kept you going back was it the was it the love of hunting was it the the opportunities that were there i mean i'd imagine it was really probably after being brought onto the ranch by you know someone 
who owned property in there to do it illegally, it would be really difficult to go somewhere else and try and hunt when you kind of had that opportunity be, albeit, you know, not exactly legal uh, in your backyard. Or was it like the thrill of like getting caught or the chase, the cat and mouse game? I love just being out there, beautiful place, you know, just solitude. I mean, there's something about it. But I got fascinated with the big rust deer of the Kansas country, three counties away. Late in my career as a poacher, I started hunting up there a lot in Demet County, where most of the buddy Crockett typicals come from, from Texas. But you know, they're like Mexico deer. They're a different bloodline of deer, big black body deer, just totally different, you know, genetics and uh, potential is greater there. So I got fascinated with them. But when I returned to the Kennedy a few times and then in the last hunt got caught in there, you know, it was just meant to be. It was destiny. But, you know, Harry was murdered while I was in retirement those six years and going to church. Somehow he was killed in a parking lot in San Antonio. And I didn't have that access anymore the last nine years. So it was all on foot from the highway. So, you know, going up in the brush was a closer hunt. I could get off on the highway there and you're hunting immediately. And so then you hunt that 80-something thousand-acre ranch up there where I was going, and you could cover that whole ranch in a four-, five-, six-day hunt, you know, or stay longer. I stayed a couple weeks a couple of times up there. And, you know, the water access was limiting somewhat. I'd leave a stash of water, a bunch of jugs of water near the highway on and off in the brush pile, and then that water I could depend on. But hunting up there in that desert was different. I got hooked on it, too. I saw Boone and Crockett deer up there get away. I had a buddy that saw a tremendous Boone and Crockett, and he thought he would get it, and it came to the next opening, and it went at him and took off, and he never fought again. And the way he described it, it was one of those, you know, 190-class bucks, typical. Big old brainer, bull-bodied black deer. Just He looked like it had 14 points, typical. He said every time on it looked 14 inches long, just an incredible, typical monster. And my buddy George Moore saw one that he thought would be the Texas record on that same ranch and shot over him twice. He had sighted his gun in, uh, I think he sighted it in six inches, no, four inches high at 100. And so it's eight or nine inches high at 200. And he had this buck coming down a fence line right close to dark, right at him. That was a full 30-inch buck. He said he had at least 14 typical, maybe more, 17-inch time length on the back. Well, he started to shoot him once when he stopped, but he said, no, he's just standing there taking a bird. He'll come on. He's wanting to get closer. He said, if I'd have shot it 200 yards, I'd have broke his neck and killed him with the gun high at 200 like that. He, he lost track of that in his mind. He wasn't remembering that. He wanted it to where he could make 400-yard shots from one bluff to another. That's why he raised it like that for over there. Yeah, he was rattling on one bluff and shooting deer off the other bluff 400 yards away. Well, this cost him the deer. The deer came forward, turned to rub a bush on a scrape, and he thought he was going in the brush, and he snapped off a shot and shot over him. He, you know, tried to go in the brush and couldn't. He hung up. His rack was so big and wide, and he turned and came running at him about 10, 15 yards and turned to go in the brush again and couldn't again, and he snapped off another shot over his back, and then it dawned on him what he was doing, and he bolted in another shell to try to get a shot off again, and he made about three or four more yards towards him and then turned and went and was able to get in the brush and disappear. He was sick. He goes back three days later at the end of that hunt to that area, and he rattles at daylight 
He's hoping he can rattle him to that same fence line and get a shot killed. And he said he cracked the horns in about 100 yards from him in the slow paracactus flat. This what looked like Border Patrolman to him with sunglasses on, mirror, mirror shades, stood up. And he said, oh, shit, you know, he was either a Gary Morton or, or Border Patrolman. He could see the uniform, sort of. Well, he breaks and runs, and he said, it wasn't no time. He's running wide open out through this scattered brush. And he said, this plane comes in quick. Then it starts circling. I had him pinned a time or two, circling bank. He'd get up and run some more. He got away from the area and was able to get away. But they had heard those shots he fired three days before, and they were watching that corner. It was where the Pilon CO Ranch cornered on the Briggs. And he said it could have easily been over 200. So he was just sick. All those years that he hunted as an outlaw, he blew it on the biggest, high-scoring deer he'd ever seen. Just what didn't have his head out of his ass. It's crazy to think about the, you know, I think everybody thinks that, you know, the outlaw hunting is, like I said, the the spotlight, the gimme, um, all of that, and uh, that it's just easy. But it, it seems like even in that, even in the even in the poachers' world, the deer get a say, right? Yeah, yeah. Listen, biggest ones always get away. Seems like <laughs> if you think you don't have the odds in their favor, consider that. Now, me and George both have let some of the biggest deer we've ever seen get away. Several of them, both of us. It happens. It, it just seems to happen more on the big one. I mean, the other deer stand around there and look at you. You could shoot them five times. But the big one, you get that little glimpse in time to kill him. If you don't, you've blown it. And so, Charles, now, um, after everything has, has passed and everything, do you have uh, the ability to hunt? Like, do you, Did you lose all of your hunting rights or... Or, or, no. or where is that? No, you know, I had no priors when I was caught. It was a first offense. It was the year before it became a felony, so it was a Class C. I was able to get 18 months probation and serve my time, you know, and uh, that's all over now. But now if I was to ever get caught again, it would be serious be under these felony law. And they would then suspend my rights. You know, I had an 18-month suspension hunting and fishing boat while I was on probation. But that was, you know, first offense under Class A misdemeanor. You know, they're putting people in jail over it now. I mean, some Colorado guys came down here the first year it became a felony here in Texas and lit up West Texas, killing all these mule deer out there in the desert like they've been doing for years. Because Colorado laws were so tough, they would come to Texas to get out from under that. They didn't know it had gotten tough down here. You know, Texas didn't make a big announcement nationwide. And they caught these two men that were married, families, wives, you know, kids. And, you know, they lost their freedom for a while. I don't know the length of time they served, but they went to prison. They probably lost jobs, wives. The whole Their, their lives were just torn to pieces, you know. And it ain't worth that. You know, it's tough here in Texas now. You get caught, you, you, you know, you're going to pay the fiddler. So do you do any legal hunting? Do you, do you hunt at all anymore? Well, I've been through the 20-year battle nearly with like 19 years now with this skin cancer, and I'm still getting it cleaned up and, you know, finished it off. But that was part of my drawback for, you know, not hunting much. I've been in poor health. I, I've been in recovery 10 years. I'm getting better. 
But I did some legal gliding and hunting on a game ranch, you know, about 2,500-acre high-fence game ranch with exotics, you know, all dead, black buck, axis, fallow. And I met Ted Nugent there and got, you know, to meet other people, too, and guide them and enjoyed a lot of being outdoors. At, you know, from 2000 to about 2003, I started getting sick, and I was in trouble then, and, and I did very little to help that old man fill up his fear and stuff over the years they're following. But then I got deathly ill. And I, I had a chiropractic doctor save my life and turn it around, and I'm in recovery just about well. Still got a little hurdle to go here at the end, but that was part of why I you know, had been worried about hunting. I'm fixing to be in a position after part two to take my son and go do some good legal hunting. I just it hadn't been you know, a priority. I've got to get that part two of the book out first. Okay. So speaking of part two and, and all that, what's next for uh, for you, Charles? What's next for Charles Beatty? Well, coming in part two also, I have a tremendous testimony for God coming. I mean, I've got some stuff that's going to be shocking and people aren't going to believe that it's coming from me of all people, but it is. And, you know, I'm going to give this testimony for God. If I die the next day, my mission is, is accomplished. You know, I'm quite a taxidermist. I'd love to leave behind some more real good mounts, you know, for my boy to enjoy and maybe others, you know. But I don't do near the taxidermy I used to. I used to do a lot of taxidermy. And, and of course, I won't have to anymore with the book. But, you know, I still enjoy it. I'd like to do a lot for myself as well. That's one thing I haven't done as much of it for myself. You know, it's always been for the other guy, the customer. So, um for 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 everything in the for the book that we've been talking about the book that's coming out uh where can people follow along with you and and get information more on on that side of it yeah i'm on instagram charles Beatty 330 and then uh, my website for the book is www.princeofpoker.com and um uh, on part one, there is my arrest and capture. I did tack that on to part one at the last so that people would have some sense of finality about it. But uh, there's so much more hunting coming in part two. It's just, I mean, big time. Yeah, I mean, it's way better than what went on in part one. About <laughs> probably triple, you know, way more bucks, more bigger bucks, you know, just hellacious stories, the way it went down and all that, that happened. But, you know, the story overall is not complete till people get part two then they'll see the, the magnitude of it it's, it's a pretty big story well awesome uh, yeah i know everybody will really get a kick out of that one well awesome charles i really appreciate you taking the time to to come on here and 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 talk about the the book and kind of like your experiences uh over the years like i said it's a, a little bit different take than than what we're used to here on the show um but uh, I think there's definitely some things that people could take away from that. Oh, yeah. You know, when they read the book, they can learn a lot of hunting tips, you know. I've had a lot of experiences teach me a whole lot that a lot of people don't know that would be helpful in their hunting. <laughs> well, all right, Charles, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. <laughs>